I'll be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. Hear now the word of God. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises of the power of the word, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, his power, eternal power, as a high priest for us. Help us, Father, to hear these words, to think upon them, to be moved by them, and to respond in faithfulness. This day, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Continuing on through the book of Hebrews, here we see that we're, again, focusing on the highlighting of Jesus Christ being the great high priest, that he is the Meg, the Megan, the Pearl, the great high priest, beyond all of the high priests. But we understand this level of greatness is also based upon his willing to take on this tremendous weakness that he was beset with with our sin, beset with our weakness. As we go through this, those same calls to us that we see before to continue to strive to enter into his rest, to trust him, to continue to hold fast, and to continue to draw near, those three particular admonitions for us are to continue to be in our mind as we hear this passage today that continues to go deeper into understanding what Jesus has accomplished by being our great high priest. We will see also echoed in this a very similar sentiment where just as he could sympathize with our weakness but without sin, and we continue to think about him being beset with our weakness but without sin, here we see that now in this role of great high priest, that he is being made perfect. Now, everything that we've seen in Hebrews, as we see this elevation of how great he is, we are also boggled by just his, how great he could be by taking on these things that are more in line to how we think about ourselves as his creatures. That here we see that the perfect is being made perfect. Now, how can that be? How can we see someone who, how can he be made more perfect? Well, as we think about the writer of Hebrews is how God is great and Jesus is great, but he is now even greater, that there's this increase, that he can increase in greatness while we're being the greatest of all. He is also increasing in perfection, even though he is most perfect. Now, we're going to go a little bit further what that actually means for him to be perfect. But we see that also not only is he being perfect, made perfect for the imperfect, 
that he was also learning. Now that is probably even more difficult for me to understand. How can the God of the universe learn? Well, here we see when we understand the role that he's taking on for our benefit, that this besetting that he took on for our benefit also included him going through a process of learning obedience by being in the flesh, not just in spite of being the son, but as a son, he becomes the more perfect son. First question I have for you as we think about his posture toward being one who is begging God, praying and being tearful. It says that he did these things, but he remained or he, became, he was heard because of his reverence. I want to get some of these word definitions clarified quickly so that we can understand how the writer of the Hebrews is wanting us to understand who Jesus is as a high priest. What is the meaning of the word reverence? What do you think of when you think of reverent or reverence? Respectful, super respectful, okay? To hold in high esteem. To hold in high esteem. So respect and high esteem. All. All. That's all very good definitions. Anything else? It's also an element of humility in yourself when coming before something that you view as reverent. Okay, good. Then you need an understanding of your own posture. So there's a contrast whenever you think of reverence. It is posturing yourself in a certain contrast to the one that you're showing all in reverence and esteem and respect to. So if you, if there, if you encounter someone that, that would draw that kind of reverence, that would, kind of, that would draw that kind of respect, would, if they said something that's in, in light of the very subject matter that has caused you to have that kind of reverence, would you find weight in what they said? Yes. yes. You know, if, if someone was really good at something, you know, we can see different levels of reverence. Here we see this great reverence toward God, but we give reverence and respect to different people based upon their roles or what they've known or there's something that comes along with their particular occupation or gifting. And if they say something, we know, as Kevin mentioned, we are postured in humility that we're not there. We are not in that particular role. So if that person turned to us and said, like, say it was a, you're wanting to learn guitar and you had one of the greatest musicians, guitarists in the world there, and you were trying to learn how to play guitar, and they said, well, you need to move your finger in this manner. I probably picked the wrong thing because I cannot play guitar. So if you're trying to play this chord, and they said, you need to hold the guitar differently than that, do you think you should do that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think you might say, Charles, these are very obvious questions. <clears throat> yes, they're very obvious questions, but I believe that we live in a culture today that we have a really hard time understanding what reverence is. And I would think that many of you would amen me on that. That it would, it would be silly for us if we had a great guitarist here. And I'm looking up like he's a very tall guitarist. Maybe he's 
sitting up on a stage or something. But and, he, and, he, and I'm sitting there trying to learn how. And if he said, move your hand over there, and I'm like, nah, I'm going to do it this way. That, that, that would be at minimum disrespectful. It wouldn't be showing a lot of reverence, and it would be likely foolish. If you knew that that particular individual had that. Well, here we were in a society where we have a very difficult time understanding how to show reverence toward one another, but particularly toward God. And it's important for us to understand that Jesus, the the Son of God, the one who has eternally existed, showed reverence toward his Father. Now, I was just recently, and I shared this with my family, I was reading an article that was by ResumeBuilder.com, and it was talking about recently, I think in just in the last month, there was a survey of employers in the nation, and they determined that 74% of managers in these multitude of different corporations throughout the country say that Generation Z, which is or people who were born uh, somewhere between the um, year 1997 and 2012 are the most challenging generation to work with. Now, that's our newest workforce generation that takes up the bulk of my, my children, at least my older children, um, that these are the most difficult people to work with. And some of their top reasons were due to the fact that they lack motivation, they lack effort, they lack or they are easily offended and they don't listen. <laughs> they simply don't listen to instruction. They always feel like they have all the right answers and so they're not teachable. They lack a reverence. They go into a place and many of these people are fired within the first week of their employment. I know that when I have done opportunities in the past decade of, or two decades of work, that they would, people would not even show up. You'd go through the interview process and they'd get the job and then they wouldn't show up and they wouldn't even call. There was no reverence to even letting people know. And that's actually probably of the, of the previous generation of people. But there is a culture that is riddled with a lack of reverence, a lack of respect, a lack of humility toward other people who know something that they don't know or can do something. They, people are taught today that they know it all. I mean, it's a part of our marketing strategy is that you deserve, you deserve this thing. You're the greatest. You can be anything you want to be. That it's a mantra that they hear from the very beginning in this particular generation. It's had such an impact on them that people are not able to function in corporations working with that kind of mindset. And Jesus Christ shows us in this totally contrasting scenario, but that Jesus, the one who is the greatest man who ever walked on this earth, showed tremendous reverence. So with that in mind, we want to go into this mindset as we're continuing to carry what the writer of Hebrews has shown us so far, that this amazing greatness that Jesus is, is that he's taking on this tremendous humility. That everything that parallels his greatness that's highlighted in this particular book has something to do with him taking on a role that most of us, particularly in this generation, would see to be a very lowly, very lowly role, so much that most of us don't even understand what that role looks like because we don't even understand what reverence is. 
In that first verse there that I read today, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Two words I want to highlight there. This word offered up is the same verb that is used for priest. So it should be obvious because we're talking about Jesus being the great high priest. But when it says that he offered up, is that this is his offering to God, that he is not just putting forth an offering of a sacrificial animal, but that Jesus Christ as the great high priest and the great in perfect sacrifice, that what he does in doing the work of the great high priest, that he gives us prayers and supplications to God. Now, when I ask you all, what does the word supplications mean? That's a fancy word. But I don't hear, I, maybe I hear the word reverence a little more in people's conversations, but I don't ever hear people talking about supplications unless they're in a pulpit or, or talking about something related to, to worship and praying. But what does the word supplication mean? Pleading. A better word is begging. It is right out begging. Now, the amazing thing that the writer of the Hebrews is doing here, the letter to the Hebrews, is that you see this terminology, and I think it's, I I wish that the English translation, I don't know, maybe there is an English translation that has actually put the word beg, because the supplication sounds a little too refined, it sounds a little too um, controlled, Um, but when I think of the word begging and pleading, it's, there's a sense of desperation there. But we have Jesus is begging out to his father in, with tears and loud cries. We need to understand what's going on. We need to understand the volume and the depth that's going on here. But that he was heard because he did have reverence and respect and an acknowledgement that he was speaking and calling out to his father who was able to save him from death. That Jesus Christ in his role as a high priest for us, he's not just praying, he is begging with loud cries and tears. And we'll go through some of those passages in the gospel that highlight that so that we can understand just what he did as this great high priest but we, what we want to get is a feel of this, this great contrast, this very intense contrast, that as we see him as this great high priest offering up himself, but his act, his work, is begging, begging God with loud cries and tears. That he, This whole idea of him being beset with weakness, here he is being beset with this great weight and responsibility and this great pain of suffering was his particular work even before he went to the cross. A lot of us think about the work that he did on the cross and where he became the sacrifice, and we should think about that particular work where he physically died and suffered, but we don't always think about just what was being placed upon him in the suffering leading up to the cross. That as he was contemplating, not just the physical suffering, but when he was contemplating us. And the, the, the weight of the stress, the weight of the suffering, and where he was, that he was doing this on our behalf, that he was becoming us. 
He was becoming our sin. He was becoming our weakness. He was taking on our song of suffering and striving so that we would be made perfect, so that the imperfect would be made perfect. In Luke, if you, I want to go through some of these passages so that you can see this highlighted. If you would, turn to chapter 22 of the book of Luke, and starting with verse 39. And I want you to keep, keep remind, remembering those three admonitions, those three instructions to strive to enter into his rest, to strive to enter into what, this trust of what God has said, to hold fast what we believe about what Christ has done, and then this last admonition to draw near, that as we first strive to trust him, and that when we hold fast to what we've been told to trust, that we are called to draw near. There is a benefit in every one of these things. Not only do we get to see Christ as being this great God, this great high priest, this great mediator for us, that we see him in his weakness, but because he took on this weakness and he's beset with our sins, there is this tremendous benefit that we are to draw near. We are actually commanded to receive his grace in the benefits that come from what he has done in this role of the great high priest. In verse 39, it says, And he came out and he went, as was custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And he came to the place... And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, just think about this prayer, just in this, this short prayer so far. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Here is the son who knew he had come to be the great high priest, to become the great sacrifice that was filling the weight of what he was called to do, filling the suffering. He was praying to his father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. It is showing us that Jesus was in that particular place where he was not wanting to do. Now, when I say wanting, that's not the same kind of wanting in the sense that he's not, I don't want to do this. If he came with his mindset to serving his father, he did not want to experience the pain. It wasn't that he was, that he, he loved and he thrived on pain and suffering. And he actually shows us a model of praying that, God, if you are willing, remove this cup. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This shows you that he is crying out that there is a true weight. There is a true suffering. There is a true weakness. There is a begging. If you think there's anything that you've ever begged the Father for, Jesus was begging more intently here. That if there was some way, if there was a way, to forego this particular suffering, that he would want that to be the case. And he was begging for that. He was before the Lord begging. We know he was begging because of what was going on with his sweat, turning like blood drops onto the ground. But then we see this reverence, this understanding, this reverence of who God the Father is by saying, 
Not my will, but yours be done. And then when we think about that, here here we have this trusting his father. Jesus Christ, the son of God, was trusting him. He was entering into that trust of God. He was also holding fast the confession by saying that it's going to be your will that will be done. That there is even this interesting moment where there is seemingly this contrast. But I think Jesus, as he's speaking from the flesh, this contrast to what the flesh is experiencing in light of the overall will of the Father, which is also his will as well, he is also drawing near to God in his reverence. And therefore, he is receiving even the benefit at that moment that even though we know that the answer to that particular prayer is fulfilled ultimately in the resurrection, we see that and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Now, he was strengthened by this angel, but then the very next verse shows that he was still continuing in agony. So it was a temporal type of strengthening. He still had the agony, but with that agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. A lot of times when we think about the narrative of Jesus's road to the cross, we, we just see these as just points of narrative. Like, yeah, it makes sense. I can understand. It was late. They're tired. They have a lot of stress. They're going to fall asleep. And we forget that there is instruction here for us that this is a model, a structural model that we are to go and enter into even now as we think about what Jesus has accomplished. When we think about responding to that, we should hear the words that we hear from his word today. And then we should apply it in our own lives. And we need to understand that as we're thinking about his suffering, it probably brings to mind your own suffering and your own sorrow. And a lot of times when you are in sorrow, and you're in great despair, what do you want to do? You just want to check out, right? If you can't deal with certain things, if you can't process certain things, that the the, the weight is just too much for you to bear. I I know some people, and sometimes it's not a bad idea, it's just best just to go to sleep. Some people are actually dealing with so much suffering and pain, they don't want to do anything but sleep and just check out. Permanently. But here we're called that we're in, when we are in those particular moments, we are to rise, we are to wake up, we are to become alert instead of being in a slumber of, of, of sleep and being disconnected. We are to sometimes rise up and to, to have a vivid understanding of what's going on and to pray that we do not enter into temptation that we do not fall because of what Jesus has accomplished. It's not two different things going on that Jesus was just kind of mad and upset with the disciples for falling asleep. Like, get up, guys. You know, you need to be praying about something. Pray that you don't sin. It wasn't, that's not the point. Is that because of what he is doing, because of the sacrifice and the, the, the offering up of himself as a sacrifice, that our response to that is to have a very sober mindset to what's going on And then to pray to that same one that we would not succumb to our temptations. That we would not, in a sense, die to that moment 
in a bad way by giving in to the deceiver. Turn to Mark chapter 14, reading from verse 32, and another, another uh, perspective of the same event. It says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. I want us to, again, to highlight and to understand the reason why the writer of the Hebrews is talking about what he's writing here in the book of he- to the Hebrews is that he's going back and he's thinking about these particular records of what Jesus did, that Jesus was greatly distressed and that he was troubled. And he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. That the sorrow itself could kill him. That there was so much weight being put upon him as he was contemplating the work that he was doing on our behalf in this role of the great high priest. And this is what he's doing right here. This is, this is his, his action of being a great high priest right here. This is the work that he was doing for us. That it could have killed him that that sorrow was so great. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. Now, some people say that he, he I don't know if it's just a, a mindset that's hard for them to fathom. And so they go, no, he, he wasn't really, he, wasn't, he was just praying this as an example. He wasn't really wanting God to remove this from him. I think it's very clear in every passage that we see here that he was praying, that he was begging, that if there was a way, if it were possible, that this would pass. And I think it's, it is an example to us that there are things that we are called to do on behalf of the kingdom of God in our particular roles as individuals and as a church that seem so overwhelming that it is good and fine and right for us to ask God, if it is possible, do not make me bear this load. But we are also to go further in understanding where Jesus landed in having this reverent response to what God had called him to. Here we say, him, say it word by word. It says, Abba, Father. He's begging out. He's reminding his Father that he is the Son. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And again, it tells of him coming to the disciples and telling them to pray that they do not enter into temptation. John chapter 12, verse 27 through 32. Again, remember, strive, hold fast, draw near. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard, heard it said that it, had, that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, so, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When we are called here to strive, we are to strive with Jesus here. We are to have our mind set on what he has done, and we are to hold fast this 
this record of what Jesus did to glorify the name of the Father, but we are also to hold on to this promise that we are drawn to Jesus because of what had happened here, that we will be drawn closer to Jesus because of what he has done and also for us to remember what he has done. See, the reality is already there that Jesus has done this, But as we remember as a testimony, that work of remembrance is also us entering into his rest by being drawn nearer to him in that understanding. That is why it is an active word for us today. That is why coming here together is a benefit. Though we come here in a response because God is God and we should worship him, we receive the benefit from that power of his word, being reminded what he has done. There is an active and real drawing of his people to himself. So again, we see here that Jesus took on this great suffering for us and that he, in the middle of this, and we were reminded by the writer of the Hebrews that although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, how is that? In a sense, I even think that it would maybe even word it a little differently, that as a son, that he learned obedience. We would see that on one hand, that we would see, why would God do this to his own son? And that would make sense. Their sons should expect protection from their father. They should, they should, they should have an expectation that they're going to get some kind of benefit of greater comfort in greater love and greater affection. And so we do see that on one hand, that even though he was a son, he had to go through this experience of learning obedience to his father, which again, just boggles my mind. But we also know from the word of God that to be a legitimate son, and again, we're kind of, if we understand what's going on here, when we think about earthly sons, when we think about human sons, typical human sons outside of being divine, it is a normal thing that to be a legitimate son, you're going to be disciplined by your father. That it's not just by being in the role of the son that Jesus is going to get this great benefit from the father. No, he is going to be legitimized fully as a son. Fully as a son like we are legitimized as a son by actually having to be disciplined. Not being disciplined because of disobedience, but to be taught, to be discipled, to be, dis- to, to be discipled with the suffering. All discipline, I mean, my children can, can answer this to me. Children, do you like the word, do you like it when I discipline you? Is it ever a positive thing? You know, if I said, okay, kids, you have a choice. I can go and buy ice cream. Or I can discipline you right now. Nobody's going, oh, discipline me, discipline me. (laughs) They're all going to say ice cream, ice cream, right? Because they know that no matter what, whether it's reactive discipline because of disobedience or this is going to be a training time, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to be ice cream. But that Jesus, in his being made more perfect, He learned obedience by what he suffered. And it's interesting here, and again, you know, I am no Greek scholar, but I'm so grateful that there are Greek scholars who have given us tools. But 
The writer of Hebrews here is, is, is actually being, he's rhyming. He's using verbiage that rhymes because the word for learned is actually a mathen, and the word for suffered is a pathen, that Jesus experienced a mathen through what he apathened. It is to help us to understand this combination of this learning, this experience of learning obedience was tied to his suffering. It's, it's, it's showing this not so much perfectly synonymous terminology, but this perfectly synonymous experience that Jesus had to suffer to learn obedience. Just as with any discipline of any legitimate father to, an, to a legitimate child, that it's not going to be cookies and cream when they're going through that discipline. It's going to be work. And this work of Jesus as the great high priest involved immense suffering that caused Jesus to respond with loud cries and begging out to his father. Again, when we think about it in, in our reference, we can probably think of times that we may have begged our own fathers for some kind of mercy. Whenever, but it's always in light of our own sin, typically. I can think of many times um, where there was, maybe my, I think of my neighbors more than I think of me as a kid, where they're begging out to their father not to go to the tree <laughs> to get the switch. You know, they know that they did was wrong. And that long walk from wherever they were to that tree, and usually it's, it's a quiet, the, the father's not saying anything as he's going to the tree, but there's a lot of noise from the child. But here, we know that Jesus did not have that, the response of being one who was in sin that was about to receive the discipline as a sinner, but there is this pleading out to the father in his own perfection, in his own holiness, in his own reverence, father, if it be possible, let this pass. He experienced that on our behalf, by maintain, but still maintaining that perfect reverence. We see later on in Hebrews where this is highlighted in chapter 12, and we'll come back to it later on when we are at this particular place at the end of the year. It says, have you forgotten, chapter 12, verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? He is the most legitimate son in suffering. He went as close as he could through to the suffering without experiencing the response of being one being admonished of sin. But he had such great weakness, more weakness in suffering than we have ever imagined or even experienced so that we may be made legitimate sons. And then lastly, in closing, last week I mistakenly used the word mediator when I was talking about what your role is as Christians to each other and praying for each other. I meant to use the word intercessor. But Jesus is both the mediator and the, and the intercessor for us. But we are called to be intercessors to, for each other. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, 
For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We see that Jesus is here in this particular role as the great high priest. He is our mediator. He is taking on a role that none of us could possibly do. But our, <clears throat> our particular passage here is prefaced with 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. It says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We see here that because of what Jesus has done, Our ministry is to take on all that we can, not because we are able to do something in of ourselves, but because our work is resting in him, our response is to take on a mimicking, a life that is very similar to the very things that he experienced when he was that great mediator for us. And the first thing that Paul tells Timothy here in that particular passage is that I urge that begging... All right, remember, supplications means begging. When you pray, do you beg? Now, I'm not asking you to do a time of confession here. I mean, do you beg for other people? The context of that passage is, is that for all peoples. Now, that can include yourself, but I know that we often beg for ourselves. God, please give me this or help me with this or help this circumstance. For, and it's, we, we do our, most, our best begging We tend to do for ourselves, but do we beg for each other? Do our prayers, are they that intent? Have we entered into our love and our understanding of one another that we're willing to beg, that we are to to carry on their weight for them before the Lord? That's what Jesus did. Remember, he's experiencing all of this weight. He, He didn't have that weakness. He didn't have that weight upon him. He wasn't, you know, in, in, when he was with the Father and the Spirit together before this time, he wasn't experiencing that same level of weightiness that he did, after, that he did when he became flesh. But he took that weight on on our behalf. And so therefore, we are to strive to enter into his work by striving to take on the weight of what others are experiencing. So when we send out prayer requests, or you have prayer requests in the order of worship there, we are to, to not just go through, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to pray for them. We are to, to take a moment to think about the weightiness of what their needs are. And sometimes when you hear prayer requests from people, you may not, you know, that's not really what you need. <laughs> what you need is maybe humility or something. You can, sometimes, and, and you've got to be careful that we don't get overly judgmental, but you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes, you know that people are asking for things that maybe they shouldn't necessarily have, but do you not? Do you just spend the moment to get upset with them, or do you go, but I do truly care for this person, and I, I am going to intercede on your behalf because I desire the blessings of the Lord for you. Paul says that he urges that begging, prayers, intercessions, that means you're, you're standing before the Lord on their behalf. 
You're, it's in a sense, you're, because Jesus is the great mediator, you're, you're a spokesperson for Christ in that intercession. You're, you're, point, you're coming before the Father, not by standing there and saying, hey, look at me, Father. You're, you're standing before the Father and you say, look at what your son has done for my brother here or for my sister here. That's what Moses did, ultimately. He pointed to the Father and said, because of your word... You need to show mercy to these stiff-necked people that you've given me in my life. And that's how he prayed for them in many ways. But we are to do the same thing because of your word, capital W, your son. We are begging you, Father, to grant mercies and blessings upon them. And we're to do it with all thanksgiving. Here in this particular context that Paul is telling Timothy is particularly for kings. And those who are in high positions is to be talking about our leaders. And that's usually the people who are on the lowest of our totem poles that we have any kind of affection for. Do you think that maybe for your own family and for your own church that they shouldn't at least be higher on that list? Here in this context, he's talking about politicians. And those people are nasty, right? I mean, even in that age, we know that the publican or the tax collector, anything involved in around politics were the lowest of low. Some of you may have seen or heard the speech that Tucker Carlson did a week ago before the Heritage Foundation. And I'm not here to, you know, to, to boost up Tucker Carlson, but it's, it should be interesting, even by his own confession. He's like, look at who's saying this. You know, he's like, I'm an Episcopalian. You know, he, was, he was trying to highlight the point that I'm not even this religious of an individual. And here what I want, here's what I want to tell you that you should be doing. One, you should call a spade a spade. You should call wickedness wickedness and quit playing around with this stupid game that this is some kind of virtue. Call it wickedness for what it is. And then secondly, you should be praying for our country. You should be begging out for our country. At least take 10 minutes out of your schedule to pray for our country. Here, Paul and Jesus is telling us to pray, 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 pray. Pray for your nation. Pray for your church. Pray that you don't enter into temptation yourself. And then Tucker said to tell people that you love, that you love them. I mean, and he's saying, remember, who's telling you this? I'm just some peon. But it's all based upon something from a greater person that we see in the scriptures. We are called to do this. Let's go back to that word reverence now. If Jesus has told us to do this, shouldn't we do it? So the question is, do we do it? You know, we all felt like that would be a stupid thing to stand in front of the greatest guitar player ever. And he says, do this. And you go, nah, I'm going to do it this way. But don't we play that kind of song all the time with God? The very basics. I mean, it's silly for me to be at the dump talking to a guy there, and he's like, you know, I find that most churches, they don't worship God. <laughs> most Christian churches don't worship Jesus. This is absolutely insane. You know, we're, we're, that's where we are. And we need to pray that we don't fall into temptation. We don't just need to look down at other people. We need to say, Lord, how are we doing this? How are we falling into temptation by listening to your word, having your word in abundance and in multiple copies. We have podcasts, we have preaching, we have teaching. And then we decide, no, I'm going to play a different song. I'm going to play a different way than what you tell me to play. He was made perfect. He became the source 
of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now think about what's going on here. Jesus is pleading out and begging. We do begging, but we probably beg for the wrong things, as James says. Here we're to be begging about his will, begging that his name will be glorified through these people. But there has to be this posture of reverence. And one of the words that is synonymous with reverence that we don't typically go to, which is submission. A lot of times we can have a lot of respect. Like, I respect you, but I'm not going to do that. You know, we get that a lot of time as homeschoolers. Like, you know, I respect you, but we're not going to do that. (laughs) You know, know, I get that all the time. We really respect that you'd be willing to do that, but I'm going to go ahead and send my kids over here. (laughs) Like, why do you respect me? Why do you respect what we're doing? What's going on there? Well, we think that's kind of a silly talk, but don't we do it too? We respect you, God. We, we respect you. We, we think it's great that you give us salvation, but I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. I'm not going to obey you. He's the source of eternal salvation. It's the benefit that is alive and well today. He sang our song of weakness so that we can sing his song of hope. It's not that he's wanting just to make us submit He's wanting us to sing his song of hope. I'm going to close with that song in Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. Ah, Sorry. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death. My eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, even when I spoke, that I was greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation, and I will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious In the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son has taken on our song of weakness so that we can sing his song of hope. Make these words true in our hearts. Help us to have reverence to what has been said by your word. Help us to obey it. This eternal source of salvation is for only those who trust and rest in you. We pray that this would be so this day and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us thank.